Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Well, this is kind of the first official live back in the saddle since the first of the year broadcast. And I welcome you to it. Hey, great to have you with us. Craig Roberts here as we are Monday through Friday from 5 to 7 p.m. addressing issues that impact your life your world, your Christian walk, and by golly, we've been doing it for over 30 years now, which officially categorizes me as an old guy. (laughs) Great to have you with us today. We've got a pretty jam-packed program. Coming up a little bit later on, we're going to talk about a number of new laws here in California that all went into effect, many of which will impact you, though you might not have even heard of them. Public policy expert from Pepperdine University, our good buddy, Pete Peterson is going to join us to kind of break it all down. We'll also get a little bit more in-depth information pertaining to the potential public policy nightmare associated with what's happening in Iran right now. You heard there at the top of the hour a report that there have been a number of missiles lobbied into um, a region that is occupied by American defense forces in Iraq and uh, It's going to be interesting, no doubt. This is, by the way, nothing new. This is sort of the next chapter of animosities that have gone on between the United States and Iran going back clear to 1979, for those of you not old enough to remember. So we'll talk more about that. Also, we've got an update on the case concerning the pastor in Spokane, Washington, who had been arrested for not even peaceful protests, showing up to find out what was going on at a public library. And, um, boy, talk about doubling down by the prosecutor in Spokane that seems to have a very unique anti-religious overtone to his methods. We'll talk about that with constitutional lawyer Brad Dacus. We'll also talk about this year marking the 100th anniversary, 1920, women got the vote in America. And of course, uh, this January marks the 47th anniversary of Roe versus Wade. We'll uh, juxtapose the two and talk about where things stand in the pro-life movement. What to expect in 2020? Brian Johnston from the National Right to Life Committee joins us. And speaking of the anniversary of Roe versus Wade, every January, of course, uh, marking that tragic decision we set aside an opportunity to do just the opposite, to celebrate life, to point to the importance and value of life. And one of the ways in which we've done that here in California for the past 15, now 16 coming up years, has been with the Walk for Life West Coast. And joining me now with details on this annual event is one of the co-founders and organizer, 
Eva Muntain. And Eva, a very happy new year to you. Welcome to the program. Congratulations on uh, now 16 years coming up here in uh, January 25th. Huh? That's great. It's amazing. It's, I can't even believe how fast these 16 years have gone by. And hello and happy new year to you too. <laughs> well, th- um, thrilled thrilled to be able to uh to talk about this. Uh, this has grown into one of the the biggest events in the pro-life movement in the country and we're so uh, terribly pleased for that and of course uh, very thrilled for uh your leadership and really at the heart uh, your burden to to spread the message of the importance and value of life, and it'll happen again for folks all over Northern California who will gather Saturday, January the 25th in uh, what has been marked by many as some of the most um, exciting pro-life events, certainly anywhere in the country, with a number of incredible speakers this year. Tell us more. Okay. That's, um, thank you so much. Um, I don't know if you or any of your listeners were there this last year, but um, the highlight this year is going to be that um, we're going to bring back the seven women who were on stage, the seven women who were expecting babies, and they had fetal heart monitors um, on with bullhorns, and with just the whole crowd, everybody was silently listening to all these beautiful babies' heartbeats. And it was a huge success. The video of it has half a million views already. Um, so what we're going to do this year uh, is we're going to bring back some of the women with their babies, and we'll play the video of the um, of the event this last year of the of the pregnant women on stage, and then we'll bring out the women with their babies just to really bring home and show that it was the same baby last year that was in the womb that they're going to now meet in person this coming year. So it's going to be a very exciting. Uh, event we've never done anything like that before, and we really want to show the humanity of the baby, you know, especially the baby in the womb, who is now the baby outside of the womb. So it's one and the same baby. <laughs> so we're very excited about that, and uh, because it's an election year, we also have Father Frank Pavone. He's just been an advocate for voting properly and voting your conscience and voting pro-life. So we're very excited to have him. He's a great speaker. And then we have our very own Kathy Folan, who's a local here, who has a story to share that's just an amazing story. Um, she had been raped, and then she, and I'll let her tell the story. So you come and hear her story. And then, of course, we have Reverend Childress, who we have almost every year, who's with org. He talks about, you know, the how the abortion industry targets the African-American population, and he's also a fantastic speaker. So it's going to be a great, great uh, event this year. And I'll mention you you, um, you brought up Reverend uh, Clenard Childress, who is one of the, the annual keynote speakers, and, of course, he's been involved in the pro-life movement for, my goodness, probably better part of 30 years now, most notably as the founder of Black genocide.org. He's going to be with us on the program coming up this Thursday. And uh, we're really looking forward to this year, uh, praying for uh, great weather and an opportunity for people to come out and and really not just make a statement. And I want to be careful about that, Ava, because some folks think, well, this is just sort of a, you know, a, a political statement. No, it really is a statement for, for life. And uh, to, to celebrate, even as we mark here the the 100th anniversary of women in America getting the vote, that standing up for life is, as much as giving them the vote 100 years ago, empowering to women, so too is the notion of standing up for life. Would you agree? 
Exactly, exactly. We have to do it. We have to stand together. We have to come out. We have to show the support for the pro-life movement. And we have to be united. That's the main thing. We have to, we have to work together and, and to make sure that this ends. And as you know, the Walk for Life, we're, we're all about how abortion hurts women. We're all about making sure that all the women know that there are resources before and after crisis pregnancies. And so we, we have all kinds of vendors there and at an info fair. So we invite everyone to come out, learn what's available, learn what uh, what resources are available, and just have a great day with us, united in our stand for the unborn. Eva, you mentioned, of course, about a number of the wonderful keynote speakers that will be there at the event Saturday, January the 25th. Kind of walk us through, if you would, what the, the morning and early afternoon is going to look like. I understand that initially this will begin with the Silent No More Awareness campaign uh, that takes place about uh, quarter of 11. Yes, that's correct. So about the same time that the Silent No More campaign starts, we also have the info fair. So you, you can come out early and listen to the to the women who have amazing stories about their, you know, crisis pregnancies um, at the Silent No More, and then also visit with the vendors at the info fair. Um, and then our rally starts at 12.30, and we go for one hour. We have speakers, we have prayer, we have... Um, awards to give out, so we'll, we'll have all of that in that one hour from 12.30 to 1.30, and then we start walking at 1.30, and we walk down Market Street under our 50 big banners that we have up there again this year. Um, on Market Street, we have 50 banners every year that says abortion hurts women and talk about the walk for life, so we'll walk under those for um, down to the Embarcadero Plaza, and it's basically every year it's been an exciting event. We hope to have a lot of musical groups, you know, along the way. So come and join us. <laughs> it, it really is a remarkable way to spend a Saturday. And again, the date for this year's annual March Walk for Life 2020 will be Saturday, January the 25th. Begins, as we mentioned, at 1045 with a, a Silent No More awareness campaign. And then at 11 o'clock, the info fair gets underway. That'll run from 11 until 12.30 there at Civic Center Plaza. And then, of course, the main event, all the keynote speakers, the rally at 12.30 to 1.30, and then 1.30, the walk from Civic Center Plaza. Um, would be down or up, Mark? I guess that's down Market Street from there, isn't it? Heading down towards uh, the uh, the ferry building and the, the uh, terminal there along the Embarcadero. You can get complete details on this 16th annual Walk for Life San Francisco online at walkforlifewc.com. Think Walk for Life and WC for West Coast, Walk for Life WC. Dot com. Looking forward to an exciting day, Saturday, January the 25th, the 16th annual Walk for Life West Coast. And uh, Eva Montaigne, as always, we appreciate the time, your leadership, vision for this event. Keep up the good work. And thank you very much for your help in spreading the news. So thank you so much. All right. And now it's a chance to uh, spread the news yourself, get some more details, hop online, share the link with your friends, be a part of the 16th annual. Imagine that. One of the largest such events anywhere in the country here in San Francisco. You almost think you got turned around and... Uh for some reason, um, I don't know, uh, your your Google Maps wound you up in uh, Kansas. Well, we're not in Kansas. Walk for Life West Coast 2020. Details on the web, walkforlifewc.com. That's walkforlifewc.com.
www.walkforlifecoachingcenter.com. And there is uh, Walk for Life co-founder and organizer, Eva Montaigne. 516 on the clock. Let's check out the traffic ahead for you on this Tuesday evening as we swing over to the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right. Thank you, sir. Welcome back. 20 minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. here on the Tuesday edition of Lifeline. Uh, Boy, it's a busy year. We've got a number of new laws that have gone into the books, effective January the 1st, many of which positive, some of which uh, it's California. So you know how that goes. Uh, Set to the legislature loose in Sacramento, and they'll come up with anything, and they typically do. We'll talk about some of these new laws, but first I want to talk about an issue, of course, that's been dominating the headlines for the last 48 hours. Now, as you heard at the top of the hour, the Pentagon confirming that Iran fired over a dozen ballistic missiles against U.S. forces earlier today. The missiles targeting two bases in Iraq where U.S. troops are stationed. The Defense Department says the missiles were fired from inside Iran. There's no word in any casualties so far at either base. The attack comes after last week's U.S. airstrike that killed the top Iranian general. Boy, this makes it a bit of a challenge, certainly trying to explain all of this from a public policy standpoint, and I know no better guy to comment on this sort of an issue than our next guest. He is Dean and Senior Fellow at Pepperdine School of Public Policy and the Davenport Institute at Pepperdine University. Pete Peterson. Pete, welcome. Happy New Year to you. And Happy New Year to you, Craig. Great to be with you. Boy, this is always a, a tough challenge to, to help to bring understanding to people who are looking at an event such as what we've seen unfold in the last uh, 48 to 72 hours in Iraq and now Iran and put some understanding to it against the backdrop of a lot of conflicting reports and certainly many conflicting opinions as to whether or not this launches potentially another Gulf War. Is it sort of the saber rattling that we've seen historically between the United States and Iran that's, well, my goodness, going all the way back to 1979? What exactly do we make of these events, in your opinion? Well, I think, uh, first off, that the strike against Soleimani was certainly justified. I mean, when you look at, first, the fact, uh, and sometimes this gets lost, I mean, he was not killed in on the Iran side of the border, and he wasn't vacationing in Iraq, right? He was, he was there to do what Soleimani's been doing for at least 10 years, and that's been trying to kill Americans. And in, in many cases, very unfortunately, he succeeded. As we all know, he has the blood of at least six or 700 American troops on his hands, and uh, his engagement really through proxy military groups uh, during um, the war in Iraq and following um, certainly uh, merits this kind of Response. I've heard a few people call this an assassination, uh, but I think it's anything but. He was killed on the battlefield, and that's something that Secretary Pom- Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State, has made clear. Uh, this was not an assassination. This was a, this was a killing on the battlefield, and it was a battlefield of uh, Soleimani's own making. Um, what happens from this point? Obviously, I I think we could expect that there would be some response. Um, I know that uh, certainly many on the left, as everything that we 
we seem to do these days, even in foreign policy, has become politicized, is uh, that uh, many on the left believe that this is the beginning of of World War III, and frankly, I just don't see it. I I think that uh, I think if anything, Iran was um, was very much taken aback by this uh, response by President Trump and the American military, and I think they've shown. Uh, over the course of the last several decades, that um, uh, there was a journalist, uh, Lee Smith, who wrote a book called The Strong Horse, making an argument that many in the Arab world, particularly in Iran, will only respect strength against strength. And uh, I think after this uh, initial barrage of rockets and maybe a few other uh, weeks of attempted attacks and actual attacks, I, I really do think that this is going to uh, eventually die down. One of the areas of perhaps some confusion here for folks is we, we sort of look at this and, and the only thing we know to equate it to is our own military and thinking, well, my goodness, this guy is just a cog in the wheel and you take him out and some underling or a fellow uh, career general steps in and the policy against United States interest um, and behest of Iran continues. But that really isn't the case here, is it? What I've read is that this guy is He's not like, uh, well, let's say during uh, D-Day, if, if Ike Eisenhower had been taken out, there would have been the opportunity for other equally decorated and experienced generals, the likes of a Patton or a MacArthur, who could have immediately stepped in. We wouldn't have skipped a beat. We would have moved forward with the efforts to expel the Germans from France and eventually liberate all of Europe. In the case of Soleimani, though, he seems to be kind of a one-man show, single, mad genius operative from what I've read, and that actually him out of the equation does not make it easy for Iran to replace him. No, I think that's right, Craig. There's a bit of a cult of personality that's built up around him. Uh, and, and again, let's be clear, the way that Soleimani has operated is not just directly through Iranian military forces. It's been through these uh, proxy forces, both in Iraq and certainly uh, we've seen this uh, around Israel in using Hezbollah. Uh, and, and so the ability to operate through proxies uh, really demands the sort of respect from uh, troops who essentially are not yours to follow your orders. And uh, that apparently was very much the case with Suleimani, that he had this uh, respect, if not idol worship, uh, that followed him throughout the Middle East. And uh, and taking him out is is... Uh, very much not the same thing as, as just thinking that, uh, you know, the next one in line is just going to move up the military hierarchy there. This is a, this is a significant loss. I've heard Petraeus, uh, David Petraeus, as we all know, former uh, general uh, leading forces um, in Iraq and Afghanistan, described this as bigger than the, than the death of, um, uh, of a number of other operatives um, that we've we've killed over the last few years, and uh, and and makes this uh, maybe the most significant uh, killing on the battlefield uh, that the uh, American forces have undertaken in the last twenty years. 
In the last 24 hours, we have seen protesters on the streets of Tehran. Um, I would wonder of the millions reportedly that have taken to the streets. How much of that is orchestrated? And I ask that question because uh, certainly there's not necessarily been a love affair between the Iranian people and the Iranian military. And it isn't all that long ago, going back to uh, 2011, 2012, uh, during the so-called Arab Spring, when we also saw protests in the streets of Tehran, in that case, a protest seeking to turn the country democratic. No, I think you're right, Craig. I mean, I, I've heard it said that, uh, you know, the, the fact that we're seeing these uh, these large gatherings and chance the death of Amer- death to America, I mean, I, I, I would just call it Wednesday in Iran, right? I mean, that this is basically just another day in that country. We've seen uh, the protests uh, of this uh, of this magnitude and certainly of this uh, direction uh, oh, ever since 1979, right? Ever since the taking of American hostages back uh, over uh, 40 years ago, uh, we've seen these kinds of uh, gatherings and protests. So I really don't make a lot of that other than to say that it is it is certainly something that uh, demonstrates or, or forces the hand of the uh, Iranian mullahs and their military that they did they do need to do something right in response to that. If if they weren't to respond in any way, shape or form uh, to this, I think that would be a significant loss of face. Uh, but how far this goes, I really I really don't see this uh, going uh, much further than what we're we'll probably see over these next couple of weeks. Yeah, I would imagine there's going to be a, a, a short-term uh, boost of saber-rattling here and, uh, you know, lob a few um, shots across the bow, as the, the, the term goes. Certainly what happened today at the two um, bases in Iraq is demonstrative of that. But I, I, I don't think here for Iran that they really want a long-term protracted military engagement with the United States, do they? No, and I don't think they can engage with it. And we should understand also, Craig, that not only, you know, we're reporting on, on some of the missiles coming into American facilities in Iraq. Uh, we, we did not just stop with the killing of, of Soleimani. Uh, we, over the last several days, American attacks on these Iranian proxy uh, Iraqi forces in Iraq have continued and will continue for the foreseeable future. So we didn't, this wasn't just simply a, an effort to take out Soleimani and then we pulled back. It was really just uh, the beginning, if not the continuation, of American uh, intelligence gathering and, and drone strikes on these uh, proxy uh, armies from Iran that are operating inside Iraq. If you've just joined us, um, some commentary on the events of today, uh, repeating the Pentagon confirming that two um, uh, you know, number of um, missiles were fired from Iran into Iraq, armed specifically or aimed specifically at U.S. forces. The missiles targeting bases in both northern and southern Iraq, where U.S. troops are currently stationed. The Defense Department indicating the missiles were fired from inside Iran. No word yet on any casualties at either base. Pete Peterson is with us. Pete, of course, is dean and senior fellow at Pepperdine School of Public Policy and the Davenport Institute at Pepperdine University. When we come back, it's a brand new year. That means, of course, New laws effective on the books here in the state of California. How many impact you? We'll find out next as Lifeline continues. 
5.31. Let's swing back over to the KFAX Traffic Center and get you another update here on the Tuesday Ride Home. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, a new year, of course, means new laws on the books. Some we like, some we don't like, and others we don't understand. But I might add, neither likely to those who pass them. Let's get a look at some of the bills, the uh, the winners and losers for 2020. We continue our dialogue. Pete Peterson, Dean and Senior Fellow at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy and Davenport Institute at Pepperdine University. And... Uh, uh, Pete, as I suggest, there are some of these bills that actually sound pretty decent, and uh, a few of which I'm really scratching my head. One that caught my attention that I was thrilled for, and that is Assembly Bill 652. Tell us a bit about that and what it's going to provide us in terms of increased religious liberty here in California. Yeah, that's right, Craig. There, uh, It's a real hodgepodge of, of uh, different measures that are now kicking in. But as you say, the, uh, one of the highlights, at least, is this uh, Measure 652, which has to do with religious displays. And what the legislation does is it actually provides more protections to display religious items uh, outside of your home. Um, it, it, it essentially prohibits landlords and homeowner associations from banning the display of these items uh, on entry doors and door frames. So especially for uh, renters or those who uh, are living uh, within homeowner associations, uh, there had been some history of uh, landlords and homeowner associations uh, attempting to prevent or actually preventing uh, people of faith from displaying uh, menorahs or, or crosses or other uh, religious symbols, even on their doorway or, or close to uh, their entranceway. And uh, this this piece of legislation, hard as it is to believe here in very secularized California, actually affords more protections for, for people of faith to display that faith uh, in their uh, just outside of their own homes. Certainly encouraging news there. Now, one bill that kind of leaves, I think, a bit of a, an odd feeling uh, after reading it. We've talked about this before. Assembly Bill Five. Now, now this yep. is this is seeking to address people that are part of the so-called gig economy. Although I understand there's some winners and losers with this particular bill. There is, and I, I just think it's it's another example of people in the legislature with little to no private sector experience uh, creating these massive pieces of legislation that affect so many people and, and try to paint with a broad brush uh, hundreds of different industries that are operating uh, it really in different ways. Essentially what it does is it it, it, it directs companies that are employing uh, independent contractors uh, that if they are d- effectively directing their work, right? So if you have an independent contractor, and even though you are paying them on a, a 1099, if you are directing their hours or where they work or much of the substance of their work, you essentially have to bring them on as a full employee and give them uh, benefits, if not uh, increased salary. Uh, this was done in response to uh, the growth of these 
uh, in large independent contracting uh, companies like Uber and Lyft and many of these uh, rideshare companies. But what we've begun to see is that in a whole array of other industries, uh, whether it's uh, trucking or uh, to journalism, uh, that there are uh, there is uh, parts of this legislation that really adversely impacts a lot of different people. And I think over the course of this, these next couple of years, I think actually there, there probably will be a ballot measure in response to this, if not in 2020, then, then certainly in 2022. Uh, but again, I, I just think this was a piece of legislation that paints the entire uh, California economy with such a broad brush, especially for those in small to mid-sized companies. Well, and if you're trying to prevent an employer from skirting providing required benefits to employees simply by reclassifying them as a quote-unquote independent contractor, then maybe a law like this is necessary. But so many of the companies that this is going to impact have people who are not, in fact, employees, who, in fact, enjoy their job on a part-time, make a little extra money for, you know, taking the wife to that special vacation to Europe or whatever it might be. They're not looking for additional benefits. And so now the burden that it places on the company from a financial standpoint is likely going to wind up seeing a lot of people losing jobs as a result just to make the numbers work for the company. Again, you know, as you mentioned, demonstrative of the notion that quite often those in Sacramento who pass these laws really have very little working knowledge of how a true business functions. Let's talk about another issue here that caught my attention. This certainly is one um, that a lot of us have been concerned with as we've watched the growing cost of living here in California. Certainly some of those hardest hit have been renters. AB 1840, I'm sorry, 1482, now in effect, that is going to provide for some caps, some limits on just how high a landlord can go. Tell us more. Yeah, so the 1482 essentially, and and this has been something that was uh, discussed throughout much of last year, it essentially uh, limits rent increases to 5% each year plus inflation, but never to go above uh, a 10% annual increase. Uh, The law does not apply to housing built uh, within the last 15 years, so these are certainly... um, uh, more uh, longer-term um, buildings that have been around for a while. But at the same time, this, again, goes back to some of these basic economic principles, right, that uh, the debate around rent control has really been one about uh, is the bigger goal trying to reduce the cost of housing in California and how we go about doing it. If the bi- If the mission is to reduce the cost of housing, then the way that you address that is by increasing the supply of housing, right? This is, these are very basic principles of supply and demand. And essentially what these kinds of legislations, uh, these pieces of legislation do is they actually make it more uh, cost prohibitive for builders to build more housing, certainly in the rental market. And so, um, again, it, it's one of these uh, attempts to make short-term fixes uh, that really aren't addressing the bigger issue. And in fact, uh, again, as we look at the, the bigger issue being building more affordable housing or housing that's affordable, whether rental or purchase, uh, laws like these really do make it more cost prohibitive to actually build more housing. And there are a number of loopholes here that 
in effect, uh, doesn't quite give the hammer feeling to this in terms of adjusting housing costs in California as it suggests it will. And I, I find troubling here, too, Pete, the notion that, you know, we can all perhaps agree that housing is too expensive. But then again, we might argue that the cost to buy a brand new car in California is expensive, too. So does the state come in and begin to regulate that as well? And do we suddenly see the exercise of free trade and, and the open market suddenly uh, come under the, the, the strong fist of the state of California? If that is the case, then we might as well be living in uh, the old Soviet Union. Well, that's right, Craig. And again, it, it, it's one thing if this if you could make an argument that this was addressing the larger problem, but it's actually in the medium to long term, you look out three, five, ten years, it's making the problem worse. Because again, if you're a if you're a builder, if you're someone who, who likes to create more housing, especially rental housing, uh, laws like this actually make it more difficult to make investment decisions in building more rental units. And so while it may benefit some people in the short term, if we're thinking about California in the long term, or if we're thinking about our kids staying in California, these are the kinds of pieces of legislation that just make it more expensive, driving more people out of the state. Final new law I'd like to have you comment on, Pete, and that is one that it, certainly any of us that uh, engage with the Internet in these days, who does that not include? Um, the passage of Assembly Bill 375, the, um, the California Consumer Privacy Act, um, allegedly is going to give consumers, Internet users, more control over their data. Uh, my concern with this, is it going to be proactive? Do we have to opt in or opt out? Or uh, what kind of rights does it really afford us as consumers in terms of protecting our data, our personal information from being sold on the open market? No, it's a good point. There's still a lot to be discovered here on the impacts and coverage of this. Where it, where it springs out of, though, is actually Europe. We actually have seen there's there's a European EU-wide online privacy uh, piece of legislation that really affects everyone doing uh, business of any sort in Europe. And so even here at Pepperdine, as we attempt to recruit students in Europe, we've had to abide by a similar piece of legislation coming out of the EU for the last couple years. And so whether we're uh, advertising on Facebook or even uh, where and how we store uh, information about European students who are here at Pepperdine, uh, many institutions that have been working in Europe have already had to abide by some type of online privacy set of restrictions like this. It'll just be interesting, and I'm, I'm really looking to see how the California law is going to interact with this EU-wide uh, piece of legislation and whether other states are going to begin to try to uh, copy AB 375. Bills, laws, issues certainly that we have discussed here together today, Pete, uh, all part of this larger viewpoint on helping the public better understand um, self-governance, what's going on in Sacramento, what's going on in Washington, D.C., and how public policy that's carried out by our elected officials really impact each and every one of our lives 
on a daily basis. Helping to understand, helping to shape, helping to communicate public policy is a big part, of course, what you do every day as dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy for folks that have an inkling that maybe this is the area that they've got some um, some desire to learn more about and, and maybe even seek out a career. Tell us a bit about Pepperdine. Right. So we're a, we're a 20-month master's in public policy program. And as you say, Craig, uh, the job and career opportunities in the public policy field really span uh, uh, hundreds of different uh, career paths from working at the local government level to up to Sacramento, uh, to Capitol Hill, Washington, D.C., uh, and around the world in places like uh, the World Bank and, and certainly our intelligence services. So we prepare students, graduate students, uh, for careers in the public square. Uh, we're certainly one of the only uh, masters in public policy programs at a Christian university. And so issues like religious liberty, as we've discussed uh, even on this, uh, this conversation here, are very important to us about preparing leaders who take that seriously, as well as the role of faith in shaping the ethical leaders uh, America needs. And so uh, we welcome your listeners or uh, those who uh, listeners may know who are thinking about grad school to check us out on our website, which is publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. And, of course, a beautiful campus down there in Southern California and a great program and, and one that really offers an opportunity for students to have the takeaway of the experience, the understanding, the knowledge, and, as Pete alluded to, the notion, too, of how all of this intersection of, of faith and government and public policy, public life, all comes together. Information available on the web about the Pepperdine School of Public Policy at publicpolicy.pepperdine.com. Our thanks to Pete Peterson, Dean, Senior Fellow, Pepperdine School of Public Policy and the Davenport Institute at Pepperdine University for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. All right, we're a bit late, so let's get caught up on some traffic here right quick, if we shall, to the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, here's one that's uh, sort of slipped into the category entitled The Gift That Keeps On Giving. <laughs> Spokane, Washington. We've talked about them before, and not always in a good way. <laughs> and it's about to get worse. Uh, all right, let's bring you up to speed on the case of a pastor, Pastor Yankton, in Spokane, Washington. And uh, last year he showed up out of curiosity. I mean, he's a pastor. He's a leader of the community. He's a taxpayer, parent in town. Wanted to find out about the local Spokane Public Library's event called Drag Queen Story Hour. Sounds like something you'd expect on the Kardashians. So he showed up. And he was not there to protest. He was not there to make a statement. He was not there to argue. He was there to observe. Taxpayer? I'm paying for this. I want to know what's going on. Some sense you might argue that he even had an obligation to do so as a man of the cloth. Well, he showed up, and the Spokane Police Department somehow decided that he needed to be moved into a special protester zone. And from there, it just gets worse. And to tell us more about it, including what appears to be a pretty hostile attitude toward people of faith by the city of Spokane. We're joined by Brad Dacus. He is a constitutional lawyer, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. And, and 
Brad, just for qualification here, full disclosure, I'm, I'm curious, are you one of the uh, the religious loonies <laughs> yes. that has been so, referred to by the uh, the prosecutor's office there? <laughs> yeah, probably, probably. I'm thinking. <laughs> yeah, there's uh, people who are concerned about the kids who are Christians and uh, want to hear and see what's going on. They're, yeah, they're religious loonies, according to this prosecutor, and wow. that's what he said on his Facebook uh, we were sort of at Pacific just sort of wondering why he was doing what they were doing, and we understand now where they're coming from, which is most unfortunate. Here's what the past happened to the pastor. Um, you know, he was handcuffed and arrested and booked as a criminal and had criminal charges brought against him because he wanted to be treated like everyone else. He wanted to see this public event at a public taxpayer-funded library, a public event uh, where a drag queen was going to be reading some very... Uh, uh, questionable material to uh, young children, and uh, he wanted to be there to just be there, observe, and to pray silently to himself. Um, the police said, um, you know, said, said uh, you know, you're, we're not, you know, you can't be here because you're not supporting him, and so they had him arrested, and he said, well, I know what my rights are, and I'm intending to be here, and I'm intending to go inside because I know what my constitutional rights are. You can't treat me differently because of my faith, and um, they did and brought criminal charges against him. We at Pacific Justice, as you know, Craig, we stepped in to represent him, as we always do, without charge. And the judge heard, our, heard what we prepared in our uh, briefing with regards to why it was unconstitutional. She dismissed the case before it even went to trial in a very thorough, very, very thorough pages and pages of, of explanation as to why this violates the Constitution, what the police did. We thought that'd be it, right? No. Then the prosecution decides to mount uh, another attack and says and petitions for a reconsideration, saying, "Your Honor, please, please, we really want to, we really want to convict this pastor. Please reconsider." She said, "She said, no, I've done my analysis. You guys are in the wrong. No, I'm not going to let this prosecution go forward." So instead of licking their wounds and going home, they've tripled down, Craig. Now they've announced they're going to appeal this. They have filed an appeal. It, for the purpose of putting this pastor behind bars and to p- get a strong message to pastors like them that there's no place for them in the public square or places of social gathering uh, when it comes to these kinds of uh, issues. And that's very, very disturbing. And we at Pacific Justice uh, salute the judge, but we're going to have to re- represent him now on appeal. Well, and it also seems to be that they're now trying to sort of up the ante as much as you and I have talked about this case uh, back and forth for almost what seems to be ad nauseum now, having thought toward the tail end of last year that, you know, the final word had been said and this was over with. But uh, again, as I said before in my opening remarks, the gift that keeps on giving. Haven't they doubled down to, uh, they're suggesting in, in the, the claims made by the prosecution, and I'm quoting here, that the pastor was using, quote, offensive language that could incite violence. Really? <laughs> yeah, that's what's so outrageous, because this is, first off, he doesn't use profanity. Uh, he's a very mild, um, wonderful guy, you know, um, He's not what you'd call an activist by any means, and uh, this is something that they have brought in. By the way, we at Pacific Justice Institute, our attorney, does a great job, Jorge Ramos. Uh, we did, uh, you know, discover we found out that they actually changed what they had originally put uh, in, 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 in the record. So what they they, they, they put what they, they say instead in the original notes, and then 
they came up and alleged something different in contradiction to what they had already stated on, on originally. Wow. Um, yeah, it, this is really, really nasty. It reminds me of something I might see on a, oh, that's right, with the federal level, CIA, FBI, okay? So, um, you know, I say that somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but it, it's very, very outrageous that we see this kind of uh, scrupulous manipulation of evidence and material for the purpose of going after someone that they themselves online have said it, it deserves the title of being among those, quote, religious loonies, which is what they call the Christians. Well, and, and that really comes down to the core matter here, I think, in terms of the agenda. I mean, beyond the attempt to try and, 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 and recover or save face here, not that there's any face to be saved, but it seems as if they are demonstrative in an outright hostility toward religion, and uh, they're they're going to they're going to uh, prove their point one way or another. I mean, we mentioned earlier that the prosecutor recently removed a social media post in which he referred to quote religious loonies associated the case, with the case, which is why tongue in cheek I, I asked the good counselor at the beginning of our conversation whether or not he might fit into that that category. But this open, blatant hostility toward people of faith here, I, I think, has got to. I mean, at a level, has got me absolutely. Gobsmacked. Yeah, and we're also, yes, we're talking about Washington State, which we at Pacific Justice Institute rank as probably in the, the top 10 states as far as hostility to people of faith. Um, that's, they're, they're definitely in, in that category. But what, what we're looking, though, at specifically is at Spokane, Washington. That's in eastern Washington. And it's, it's sort of assumed that it's somewhat like the Bakersfield of California in terms of Washington State. Somewhat. Yeah, a little bit more conservative, a little bit more sleepy, you know, not not quite as uh, out there, perhaps, as a Seattle. Right, right. And, and, and yet, to see this happen, and to see them double down, and to see them just desperate in, in everything that they can do that is not supported by the law, it's not supported by the evidence, it's not supported by the Constitution, we've proven that, we've shown that, and to see them being this vehement in their determination to attack Christians because they are Christians, because of their beliefs. That's what's clear. That's what the judge uh, looked at and decided on. Um, that is, uh, it's, it should be very concerning for, for people as we enter into a, uh, a, uh, an era of greater open, blatant um, hostility and hatred towards people because of their faith. And of course, we as Christians need to be very guarded in how we respond, of course, laying claim to our rights, because those are given to us by God, but at the same time, doing so in a manner that is uh, not uh, in kind uh, in how we carry ourselves throughout this whole process, which our client, our pastor... And, uh, and our, our attorneys are very sensitive too. Well, and clearly there needs to be a number of uh, important lessons here communicated to the prosecutor. Number one, a geography lesson that the last time I checked, Washington State was still within the borders of the United States of America that is uh, governed by this little document that protects those God-given rights to which you referred a moment ago called the United States Constitution and its accompanying Bill of Rights. So might be good for the uh, prosecutor not only to get more familiar with geography, perhaps a little bit of a constitutional law as well, but the notion of doubling down the way they have, not once but twice, uh, all in an effort to kind of have their way, uh, I, I think also ought to be of concern, not just to people of faith, but, but anyone who values, understands and values 
the rights that are protected and afforded by the United States Constitution, that any time a government thinks that they can just run roughshod over you, they don't care who you are, what you believe, why you believe it, or whether or not you have rights protected by the Constitution, they're going to make their point and they're going to use you as an example. That's pretty frightening in 2020. It is, and that's why we at Pacific Justice are committed, and I make this really clear, we're committed to make sure that every person, church in America, that has any kind of conflict like this uh, gets full representation without charge. That is our commitment. It's been that for over 20 years. It's going to be for the next uh, 20 years, by God's grace, as we move forward. We appreciate uh, the time and the effort, Counselor. And again, as I say, we, we kind of thought we'd laid this thing to rest uh, toward the end of last year. But uh, back for more, and uh, glad that uh, you are there, the battle enjoined. And, uh, you know, what can I say? We just we, we need more religious loonies like you. <laughs> <laughs> I say that with much love, and you know that. I have I to know. qualify that for listeners that they don't realize we've known each other for almost 30 years. We were both young and handsome in those days. Well, at least we were young. <laughs> there is uh, Brad Dacus, constitutional lawyer, founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. Support their good work online at pacificjustice.org. That's pacificjustice.org. All right, getting further and further behind the eight ball here. Let's get you updated on some traffic. Then we're going to get to Brian Johnston to take a look at the future of the pro-life movement and what to expect in 2020 as Lifeline continues. Here's that traffic.